Would you please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? We'll be starting reading at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Do you ever wonder why it was so hard? Why does the world make it so hard to follow Jesus? For many of us, some of the most difficult aspects of our faithfulness to Jesus is the ridicule that it brings. And perhaps you didn't anticipate it. Perhaps when you signed up on the Jesus train, you didn't anticipate the type of antagonism that you have now received. After all, there are a lot of wonderful promises that Jesus makes to those who are his followers. Even in this Gospel of John, we see that in John chapter 3, when you put your faith in Jesus, he promises you everlasting life. What an incredible promise. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says that he's come so that those who follow him would have life and life to the full, abundant life. As we've been reading the last couple of weeks, we see that Jesus says again and again that when you believe in him and when you follow him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that would seem to indicate that it's the best life. The best possible life for you is the life that's found in Jesus. And we see that he promises that if you love him, that he and the Father will make their home with you. And he promises again that when you abide in him, that he will make your joy to be full. That your life would be full of joy. The best life, the best roommate, and the best joy. And yet, if all of those things are true, and we believe that they are, 
And if all of those things are desirable, and they certainly are, and all of those things are good, and they most definitely are, then why does it feel like the world is working against me from getting all of those good and desirable things? Why do some of my friends seem to like me less now that I follow Jesus? Why was somebody arrested in Pakistan for sharing about Jesus? Why was a person killed, he and his whole family, simply because they lift the banner of Christ high in Eritrea? As you consider the pressure on your own life as it relates to following Jesus, and you think about what might become of your life if you continue to follow him, you begin to think to yourself, I don't know if I can do this. This might just be too hard. Some of you high schoolers who are navigating the social reality of your world, or some of you who are in college, you think about following the Lord Jesus and you're starting to see that there's a cost attached to this with regard to your reputation. And you, you play this down the line a year or two and you say, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It, it might just be too hard. Some of you adults who've been following Jesus for a short amount of time have been starting to see that maybe, maybe just the cost of following Jesus for you is that you won't have some of the opportunities you thought you otherwise might have. And it causes you to ask the question, is this worth it or is it just too hard? Jesus is headed toward the cross and he knows that the impending persecution is going to shake his disciples. And so he helps them understand why it costs what it does to follow him. And he does so with a very specific goal in mind. And this morning we start in the text at the end. At the beginning of our time, we start at the end of this text. And he says in chapter 16, verses 1 and 1 through 4, he says, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. <laughs> it's going to get hard. It's going to get hard. Some people are going to persecute you. They're going to think that they are doing a service to God in persecuting you. They think you're, they're right and you're wrong. They think that they have the righteous cause and that you are the wicked one. But remember these words. I'm going to tell them to you. Remember them so that when the day comes, you don't fall away. So this morning, listen to the words of Jesus Listen to the reality of the hard aspects of the Christian life. Let them recalibrate your expectations for the things that are to come. Let them challenge your desire for comfort. And remember them so that you don't fall away. Jesus begins by saying that some people in this world will hate you because they hate me. And if the light bulbs haven't gone off yet, it's probably not going to be a feel-good sermon today. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. 
It says, if the world hates you, then know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the expression or the word the world to describe a handful of different realities. He uses it different ways in different times. But probably the most common way that Jesus describes the world is the prevailing way of human life that is in contradiction to the kingdom of God. In the very beginning of the book, Jesus describes the world as darkness. And Jesus is the light that comes into the darkness and the darkness does not recognize it. In John chapter 3, we see that those who are in the world who do not believe in Jesus stand condemned because of their love for the darkness. It says in John 3.19, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so here, when Jesus says that if the world hates you, he is saying that those who live according to the systems and social values of their time, generally speaking in the world, those are the ones who might hate you. And if they do, don't be surprised because they hated me first. Now, The vast majority of us know this from our experience. You hear this, this is not surprising news to you. You've experienced a level of disdain or ridicule or maybe even persecution. Some of you for many, many, many years. Maybe it started when you were a child and your friends called you names for being a Christian. Or maybe they called your parents names for being Christians. Maybe it was made clear to you in high school when your friends made fun of you for not liking the same kind of music that they liked. Or perhaps you were set apart in college when everybody was going out to party but you weren't so interested. Or maybe, maybe it kept you out of certain career opportunities or social circles as an adult because you weren't willing to do the things that your employer was asking you to do because you knew it was unethical or immoral And it stood against the way of God. And certainly this dynamic holds to be true. It results almost certainly in how you raise your children. And the opportunities you encourage them to and the things you prohibit them from. And what that means for your family life and for their social interaction. I think the truth of the matter is is that for every single one of us, it's probably resulted in something different. The world hating you. For some of you, it's been minor ridicule. For others of you, it means your family has abandoned you because you follow Jesus. And for some, maybe for many, maybe for all, the worst is yet to come. In this way, the world shows that it hates you. But it hated him first. And just think, for most of us, our experience is light by way of comparison to Christians throughout history and light to many of the Christians in the world today. 
And the reason for that is because we live in a heavily influenced uh, a nation that is heavily influenced by Christian heritage. That there were Judeo-Christian values in the founding of our country that we have experienced a level of comfort and therefore even positive pressure to follow the Lord or the things of the Lord over the last number of decades. But we know, as we've said before, that really right now in history, over the last five years probably, there's been a major shift, a major pivot where positive cultural pressure to follow the Lord has now shifted. And there is positive cultural pressure to go against the Lord. And negative pressure to follow Him. In this way, you see the prevailing views of the world that are antithetical to God start to reign more and more every year. But at least for now, the level of hatred that we've experienced because of our faith in Jesus pales in comparison to other countries in the world. According to World Watch and the Joshua Project and Open Doors, every day 13 Christians are killed because of their faith in the world today. Every day 12 church buildings are attacked because they worship Yahweh. Every day, 12 people in the world are falsely imprisoned because of their faith, and every day, five people are abducted because of their affiliation to Jesus. Of the nearly 2.4 billion people in the world that call themselves Christians, nearly 309 million of them live in an area that is either uh, extremely high or very high with levels of persecution. That includes 50 countries in the world today. This last year, the worst persecutors in the world are relatively unchanged. North Korea tops the list and has for many years, followed by Afghanistan. Following that is Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Last year alone, 3,530 people were killed in Nigeria and 900 people were abducted in Nigeria simply because they were followers of Jesus. That's it. They followed Jesus and they were killed. No other reason. Boko Haram, among others were groups that hate Christians so much that they seek to eradicate them from the world one person at a time. Last year, 3,088 churches were attacked in China alone. And 1,147 people were detained without charge because of their faith in Jesus. That's it. Churches worshipped Yahweh, people claimed Christ, and they were attacked and they were imprisoned. In Pakistan last year, over 1,000 Christian women were forced to marry Muslim men against their will in an effort to eradicate Christianity by breeding it out of them. Now pause for a moment and think about that. 
That's a lot of statistics. And when you think about the geography and the maps and the numbers and the number of people in the world versus the number of people that this is happening to and how significant or serious this is, don't get lost in the numbers. Let the humanity of the situation wash over you. Because if it was your daughter that was forced to be married or if it was your son that was abducted or if it was your spouse that was killed, or if it was Old North Church that was attacked simply for what we're doing right now, you would feel the fact that the world hates the followers of Jesus simply because they've chosen to follow him. Jesus reminds us, if the world hates you, then know that it's hated me before you. And it's not just the fact that you don't fit in. It's not just the fact that you go against the culture. It's not just the fact that your allegiance to a greater king threatens the government systems of the world, though all of those things are true. Jesus says it's actually because they hate him. (laughs) They hate him, and therefore they take it out on you. And part of the reason why they take it out on you, he says, is because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, verse 19. Not that you were never of the world, not that you were never part of the world system and its beliefs and its values, not that you never functioned in opposition to Jesus. In fact, we know that every single one of us have been there at one point, but Jesus pulls people out of the world, the system of the world, and he places them in the kingdom. And because of that, you no longer belong to the one, you belong to the other, but the people of the world hate us for that. Now this poses a lot of different questions for you and for me, but one of the questions that it almost certainly poses is this. If someone looked at your life, would they say that you belong to Jesus or that you belong to the world? You might want to think about that this week. Because the world loves its own. And we want to be loved. (laughs) And the world provides a level of comfort. And Jesus is saying that if you follow me, there won't be a lot of comfort. But we all love comfort. And Jesus says, if you're faithful to me, the world will hate you for it. And he tells us this so that we'll stand firm. Stand firm when persecution comes. It is coming. Stand firm. Because the servants who suffer on account of the master will also receive glory on account of the master. If you suffer on account of the master, you're going to receive glory on account of the master. So stand firm. Jesus gives some other reasons why this happens. And he says in verses 20 and 21, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. He says, read it with me. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. A servant is not greater than his master. He says if they hate you, it's because they hate me. If they persecute 
me, they're going to persecute you. We first heard that expression, a servant is not uh, greater than his master, just a couple chapters ago in chapter 13, verse 16, where Jesus was teaching his disciples about serving one another. Remember, he was washing their feet as an example that they too should serve one another. And he said this to make the point that if I am the master and I am serving you, then it's absolutely ridiculous for you to be jockeying for position with each other. Instead, the posture of the servants is to serve like the master serves. The servant is not greater than his master. The same principle applies here, except with regard to persecution. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Christian, you need to know this. You need to prepare for this. If you live your life in conformity to the Lord Jesus, if you follow him in faithfulness, if every day you surrender to him as the king over your life, this will attract the same type of antagonism that Jesus himself attracted. They will hate you for it, and they will persecute you for it. In 1927, the famous English poet T.S. Eliot became a Christian. He was baptized, and his conversion was made public. Prior to his conversion, T.S. Eliot belonged to London's Bloomsbury Group, which was a small informal association of artists and intellectuals that worked together in the Bloomsbury area of central London. But when the news of Eliot's conversion to Christ hit the news more broadly, the Bloomsbury Group's reaction was one of shock and disgust. The writer Virginia Woolf was the de facto leader of the group at the time, and she penned the following letter to one of her peers. She said, I have had the most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He's become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was in shock. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. The wording here reveals a specific type of logic because when you hear this, you might naturally begin to think that Jesus says that all of the world will hate you and all of the world will persecute you, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Look at the words carefully. And the logic goes something like this. If they persecuted me, and many of them did, they will persecute you, and many of them will. If they kept my word and some of them did, then they will also keep yours, and some of them will. And so this isn't simply a gloom and doom scenario for the life of the Christian. Jesus is indicating what you have experienced to be true. 
what you know to be true, that your life will not only be filled with difficulty and persecution, but also with many, many victories along the way. That God is continuing to take more people out of the world and place them into the kingdom, and he uses the words of Jesus and the words of his followers to do so. You play a part in the master plan, even in the midst of difficulty. And so he says, stand firm. Stand firm when persecution comes, because if you, if the servants, suffer on account of the master, then you will receive glory on account of the master. And from here, he points us to the next reason why the world hates the followers of Jesus, and they hate Jesus himself. And he says so in verses 22 to 25, and we might summarize it like this. The world hates Jesus because Jesus reveals our guilt. Look at it with me. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so Jesus' coming reveals that we are guilty of sin. And when we know that we're guilty of sin, we have no excuse to continue in sin. You ever wondered why some people are angry and accusatory with you simply because you're a Christian? I mean, you haven't done anything wrong to them. You haven't wronged them in any way. You could be the most loving person in the world. But they level accusation against you because you follow the Lord. They say things like, well, you're being judgmental. Or you are just a holier-than-thou type of person. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about the person who actually is a jerk. <laughs> Some people are still, they, they put their faith in Christ and, and, and they're still a jerk. God has yet to work that out of them. And so they become very condescending and very, I'm not talking about that kind of person. I'm talking about the person who genuinely tries to follow the Lord Jesus humbly and faithfully and because their way of life continues to depart from the way of life in the world around them, accusation is against them. They say things like, well, you just think you're better than everyone else. You ever heard that? Or, man, you are so stiff now Did you become a Christian. Just loosen up and have a good time. You ever heard that? You haven't done anything wrong, and yet they seem to be angry with you. And sometimes what's happening here is that because you are following Jesus with your life, your life is pointing to Jesus, this means that they are being confronted with their sin, the areas of their life which depart from Jesus, and they no longer have an excuse to continue, but they want an excuse. Some people don't want to turn to Jesus because they just want what they want. They know it could be wrong the way that they're living, but they don't really care to find out. They don't want to be confronted with what is wrong and they certainly don't want to be confronted with what they're doing that could be separating them from God. They want what they want and they want God to be kept right here at a distance to access his benefits as they so choose, thinking they can actually do so. Other people don't want to be uh, 
turning to Jesus because they don't want to be confronted with what it actually reveals about themselves. Maybe they're too prideful or they're too scared. They're too prideful would say, like, how, how could you possibly tell me I've been living wrong for all of these last 45 years? Too scared would be like the person who knows that they have a number of medical symptoms that are growing in their severity and yet at the very same time they don't want to go to the doctor because if they get a diagnosis for what it actually is then they're going to have to deal with the treatment. They're going to have to admit there's something really wrong in here that's going to have to get fixed. And so I'd rather just live with the symptoms, pretend like it's all just going to sort of work itself out in the wash. But Jesus comes and is very present, leaves people without an excuse for sin, reveals guilt. And he does so through his words and through his works. And he says it right here. Look at verse 22. His words, if I had not come and spoken to them, and his works, verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else has done, And so again and again, Jesus has been telling the people in his hearing that his words are the words of the Father and his works are the works of the Father. When they see him, they see the Father. So when they reject him, it's not surprising that Jesus says, well, they never actually knew the one who sent him. Or that if they hate me, Jesus says, it means that they actually hate the Father as well. And so here's a really important distinction that Jesus is making again and again and again, and he's making it now very near to the cross. It's important for you to know. You can't have God in your life without Jesus at the center of your life. You can't have it. You can't have God in your life. You can't access the benefits of God without Jesus at the center of your life. He is the dividing line. With him, you get everything of God. Without him, you get the world. And so Psalm 69.4 is fulfilled, as it says in verse 25. More is the number than the hairs of my head, than those who hate me without cause. (laughs) Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. If they hate you, it's because they hate me. If they persecute you, it's because they persecute me. Why? Because Jesus reveals our guilt. But the good news is that you don't have to do this alone. As a follower, when you're hated, help is available to you. And verses 26 and 27 remind us that the Holy Spirit, who indwells the lives of Christians, is called the helper. You don't have to endure alone. In fact, God is not only with you, but in you. You don't have to wonder, did Jesus really tell me the truth about all this stuff or is the world telling me the truth about all this stuff? Because the spirit of truth, as he's referred to, is indwelling you, Christian. And in fact, this points to one of the most, if not the most, crucial role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just part of your life to 
give you spiritual guidance in your prayers or to reveal to you what you should do next in a difficult situation or, or to give you that wonderful resonance with God when you sing of his truths and his works and his ways. The chief role of the Holy Spirit is seen in verse 26. Jesus says it himself, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life to bear witness about Jesus? The Spirit does this in a variety of ways. But that is what the Spirit does. And we'll talk more about that in coming weeks. And so if the Spirit comes to bear witness to Jesus and the Spirit indwells you, then, then no matter how hard the situation is, no matter what type of persecution you've been experiencing, no matter what lies you've been told, no matter how much pressure there is for you to turn away, the Spirit who bears witness to Jesus indwelling in your life allows you too to even stand up under the pressure and bear witness to Jesus as well. Somebody once said that it is impossible for that person to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. <laughs> it's impossible to despair in the midst of persecution when you remember that the Spirit of God who indwells you, the helper, has all power. Omnipotent. And so where does that leave you, oh disciple? <laughs> where does it leave you, follower of Jesus? Where does it leave you, ridiculed one? Where does it leave you, discouraged one? Jesus says, I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. Following Jesus has a cost. The cost can be painful. But for the disciples, for the followers of Jesus, the greatest harm that will confront them in this world is not the shame that comes from the world. He doesn't say, I've said these things to you so you won't be ashamed. The greatest harm that comes to the disciples and to the followers of Jesus is not even physical harm. The greatest harm that comes to the disciples and, not, and to the followers of Jesus is not even their very death. The greatest harm or potential for harm is apostasy, falling away. And so, be prepared, friends, in this life. Be prepared for persecution because it will come. Remember the, Jesus, the words of Jesus and don't fall away. But you know what is absolutely amazing? In the way that only God could do it, the only way that God could plan it, is that you would think that persecution of Christians would mean that less people would put their faith in Christ in those areas where persecution is present. You would think that the killing of Christians would mean that less people would 
put their faith in Jesus and seek to follow him. But in only the way that God can do it, it seems like the exact opposite is true. In 2018, the country of Nepal adopted an anti-conversion law that prohibited citizens from converting to another religion. And it was widely believed at the time and still is that the anti-conversion law of Nepal, which is predominantly a Muslim country, was targeted specifically at Christians. There's a growing number of Christians in Nepal and the government said, we need to stop this right now. So they made it illegal to convert with severe penalties. But you know what happened? Over the next couple of years, an explosion of small gatherings of Christians started to happen. Churches were being planted all through the mountainside of Nepal. And they began to leak down into the cities as well. And in fact, Old North Church, our church, in this one year alone has partnered with the Timothy Initiative to plant 18 churches in anti-conversion Nepal. And a couple, 18 to 20 the year before that, and another 18 to 20 the year before that. Churches are popping up. People are coming to faith. People are growing in Christ despite the persecution. It would seem like the anti-conversion laws are having the exact opposite effect. The reason is because when the servants suffer on account of the master, the servants also receive glory on account of the master. So stand firm. Some years ago in the country of Somalia, one of the most godless places on earth, a young pirate named Azam began seeing visions of Jesus. He didn't know what to do, so he went to his local mosque and spoke to his imam about the visions that he was seeing. The imam chastised him and gave him a verbal lashing and sent him out on his way. And Azam held to himself that the last time he had seen a vision of Jesus was actually in the mosque. After he left, wondering and confused, the visions of Christ began to increase in their frequency until one day he came home to see a vision on his bed, a wooden cross laying over the top of his bed, and he heard a voice that said, Azam, my blood is still fresh for you. (laughs) He startled, went to the kitchen and asked his mother if she had placed the cross on his bed and when she came to look at it. She said that she couldn't see it. Seeing what was about to happen, Azam's mother feared for his life because the boy's father was a practicing Muslim and a powerful pirate. And so he sent the son away. Go find another town to live in. Go find a relative to stay with because if your father finds out what's happening, I'm fearful for what it means for you. And Azam did just that. But it didn't take long for his father to find him. And within a couple of weeks, his father did not come to see him, but instead he sent him a package. Two men delivered the package and placed it on the doorstep of a relative's home. And as he opened it up, Azam was shocked to find the remains of his mother chopped into pieces as her penalty for sparing her son. Following that, Azam became a strong believer in Christ. And in the weeks that would follow, he became connected to other Christians. He met the men who had contracted to kill his mother, who were fearful of him and now sought to flee from him. 
But in a way that only God could do, he gave Azam supernatural power to forgive these men and extend to them grace. He had been extended much grace. The violent pirate who had stolen much and exercised violence on so many, who was he to deny the grace of God now to another, even the murderers of his mother? In the days that would follow, he would read his Bible. He'd become connected with just a few other Christians that he could find. And in the weeks after that, they would meet together, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those in quiet circles and dark corners and late at night with the shades drawn by candlelight and in the quiet of basements where no one could hear. And as time went on and as more people came to put their faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that he offered to them, Azam, this pirate, began to put his skills to work, recognizing that these people needed to hear from God more clearly and more consistently but had no Bibles at hand. He began to smuggle Bibles from Kenya into Somalia at the risk of his very own life. If he had been caught, he'd be killed. But you know what? It seemed like the persecution in Somalia had the opposite effect. Instead of hindering believers, it emboldened them. And so what does that mean for you? It means, friends, that when you are persecuted, expect as a badge of honor this union with Christ dynamic. They hate him, and so they'll hate you. (laughs) But you know what? God himself allows those servants who suffer on account of the master to receive glory on account of the master. And so be ready, be bold, exercise courage, and know that the plan of God on earth is to take more and more men and women and boys and girls out of the world and into the kingdom, and he uses even persecuted ones to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that so often our desire in life is our comfort and that what we hear today and learn today is a direct affront to a comfortable life. But it is the life that includes the greatest joy. It includes the greatest abundance. It includes the residency of the Father and the Son. And so help us today to trust in the midst of persecution. Help us to cling to the Savior who redeems us. Help us to rest in the truth of your plan and embolden us for the sake of your glory, we pray. Amen.